Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, coming in live for you guys for the last episode of the year. And we're going to have a lot of interesting updates for this one. But first and foremost, we covered the Jeffrey Epstein case way back in 2019 in episode 31. And there is an update on this one, which I found pretty interesting. But evidently, J.P. Morgan Chase is getting into the story here. This article was written by Greg Weiner, and it is titled, J.P. Morgan Chase Accused of Turning a Blind Eye to the Epstein Sex Crimes, According to a Recent Lawsuit. A lawsuit filed this week in a Manhattan federal court claims J.P. Morgan Chase turned a blind eye to Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes. U.S. Virgin Islands Attorney General Denise George filed the suit on behalf of the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands, demanding a trial by jury. In the suit, George alleges that J.P. Morgan Chase violated the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the Virgin Islands Criminally Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, and the Virgin Islands Consumer Deceptive Business Practices Act. So the Attorney General brings this action after presenting findings back in September of 2022 in this ongoing effort that she's had to protect public safety and to hold accountable those who facilitated or participated directly or indirectly the trafficking enterprise Epstein helmed, according to the complaint. The investigation revealed that J.P. Morgan knowingly, negligently, and unlawfully protected and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims were paid and was indispensable to the operation and concealment of the Epstein trafficking enterprise. George further told the court that financial institutions can connect or even choke human trafficking networks. She claims that J.P. Morgan Chase knowingly facilitated, sustained, and concealed Epstein's human trafficking network, which he operated from his home in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and failed to comply with federal banking regulations. She further alleges that the financial institution facilitated and concealed suspicious wire and cash transactions for Epstein's criminal enterprise, whose currency was the sexual servitude of dozens of women and girls in and beyond the Virgin Islands. Upon information and belief, J.P. Morgan turned a blind eye to evidence of human trafficking over more than a decade because of Epstein's own financial footprint and because of the deals and clients that Epstein brought and promised to the bank. The lawsuit reads... These decisions were advocated and approved at the senior levels of J.P. Morgan, including by the former chief executive of its asset management division and investment bank, whose inappropriate relationship with Epstein should have been evident to the bank. Indeed, it was only after Epstein's death that J.P. Morgan belatedly complied with federal banking regulations regarding Epstein's accounts. The lawsuit continued. J.P. Morgan Chase declined to comment on active litigation this last week. So we will continue to keep you all posted as that case moves forward. It's interesting. I wonder if there will be more financial institutions or larger companies that will get pulled into this web of Jeffrey Epstein lawsuits. Next article that we're going to talk about today has to do with Anna Sorokin. And she has been in the news, I guess, trying to keep her name in there. We did cover the case of Anna Sorokin on episode 164 way back in February of this year, but 
I guess she is now selling her artwork. And it says, of course, Anna Sorokin has made $340,000 selling her horrible, no good, very bad art. And Abby Montanez wrote this article. After attempting to climb the New York social ladder as a wannabe German heiress, could notorious con artist Anna Sorokin be making a post-prison comeback as, wait for it, an actual artist? It seems the convicted scammer who went by the name Anna Del Vey during her grifting escapades has found a new passion, creating and selling her own prints from her Lower East Side apartment while under house arrest. So far, she's made $340,000, according to the New York Post. The works include original paintings and sketches that range from $250 to $250,000 in price. Lawyers, tech entrepreneurs, and Saturday Night Live alum Chloe Feynman are reported to be among her clientele. Now you can Google some of these images and they are pretty interesting, I have to say. But Sorokin, whose real-life crimes inspired the Netflix series Inventing Anna, was ultimately charged with grand larceny and theft of services back in 2019. She served three years in prison and was released early in 2021 on good behavior. She then spent 17 months in an ICE detention center after overstaying her visa before being placed on house arrest this October. While in custody, the Russian board scammer went as far as hosting an art show featuring a collection of illustrations she etched during her time at the correctional facility. She even made a surprise virtual appearance at the exhibition, which was titled, allegedly, and held at the public hotel in New York City. Sorokin is currently represented by art dealer Chris Martin of Founders Art Club. He told the Post that together they've sold prints to 40 or 50 countries. Holy moly, right? The works themselves include pen and pencil sketches on smuggled watercolor paper created while she was incarcerated. More often than not, Sorokin and the things she possesses or wishes to are the inspiration for the pieces. She has a very clear talent, he says, and she's a captivating individual and people resonate with her concepts. In case you forgot, Sorokin did actually study fashion illustration while enrolled at Parsons in Paris. More recently, in December, the famous fraudster unveiled her latest collection during Art Basel Miami Beach. The show called The House Arrest Party was a collaboration between Sorokin and New York-based gallery The Locker Room. It comprised new works that used acrylics and canvas. Despite Sorokin not attending in person for obvious reasons, she still called in via Zoom for Q&A, or perhaps it was to befriend the wealthy socialites. Wow, she's got a lot of courage to be selling that stuff, but do a Google search, check out some of her artwork, and make your own decisions on that. Another big one that came out recently is the release of the serpent serial killer Charles Sobraj, who arrived in France after his recent release, and this just recently came out. And it's interesting to me because there are very, very few serial killers that are released from prison, and this man is one of them. But Sagar Gilmeyer and Atish Patel wrote this article. French serial killer Charles Sobrage, responsible for multiple murders in the 70s across Asia, arrived in France on Saturday after 20 years of prison in Nepal. Nepal's top court ruled on Wednesday that he should be freed on health grounds and deported to France within 15 days. On Friday, he was released and put on a flight at Kathmandu Airport to take him to Paris via Doha. While on the flight to Doha, he insisted to an AFP journalist that he was innocent. 
Sobraj's life was chronicled on the series The Serpent, co-produced by Netflix and the BBC, detailing how he terrorized the continent with a string of murders that targeted tourists. Sometimes posing as a gem trader, he would befriend his victims, many of them Western backpackers in the 1970s on the hippie trail, before drugging, robbing, and murdering them. The court ordered Sobraj, who had heart surgery in 2017, to be released on health grounds after he served more than three quarters of his sentence for murdering a U.S. tourist and a Canadian in Nepal in the 70s. He said, I feel great. I have a lot to do. I have to sue a lot of people, including the state of Nepal, he told the AFP on Friday on board the plane. Asked if he thought he had been wrongly described as a serial killer, the 78-year-old said, yes, yes. He landed in the French capital on Saturday morning, an AFP reporter confirmed. On arrival at the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris, he was taken away by border police for extra identity checks, according to airport services. The source said he'd left the airport, evading a media scrum waiting in the arrivals hall. His French lawyer, Isabelle Coutpierre, told reporters at the airport she was very happy he had been released, adding that he has been unjustly sentenced in a fabricated case with false documents by the Nepali police. It's a scandal he is presented as a serial killer, which is completely false. Born in Saigon to an Indian father and a Vietnamese mother who later married a Frenchman, Sobraj embarked on an international life of crime and ended up in Thailand in 1975. Suave and sophisticated, he was implicated in the murder of a young American woman whose body was found on a beach wearing a bikini. Nicknamed the Bikini Killer, Sobraj was eventually linked to more than 20 murders. He was arrested in India in 1976 and ultimately spent 21 years in jail there, with a brief break in 1986 when he drugged prison guards and escaped. He was recaptured in the Indian coastal state of Goa. Accused of at least 15 murders across 10 countries, by the time he left Indian jails, his alleged other crimes had fallen under the statute of limitations in Thailand. Released in 1997, Sobraj lived in Paris, giving paid interviews to journalists, but went back to Nepal in 2003. He was spotted in a casino playing Baccarat by journalist Joseph Nathan, one of the founders of the Himalayan Times newspaper, and arrested. He looked harmless. It was sheer luck that I recognized him, Nathan told the AFP on Thursday. I think it was karma. A court in Nepal handed Sobraj a life sentence the following year for killing U.S. tourist Connie Jo Bronzich in 1975. A decade later, he was also found guilty of killing Bronzich's Canadian companion. Talking to AFP among bemused fellow Qatar Airways passengers on Friday, Sobraj insisted he was innocent of killings in Nepal. The courts in Nepal, from the District Court to the High Court to the Supreme Court, all the judges, they were biased against Charles Sobraj, he said. I'm innocent in those cases, okay? So I don't have to feel bad for that or good. I am innocent. It was built on fake documents, he added. Thai police officer Sampal Suthamai, whose work with Interpol was instrumental in securing the 1976 arrest, had pushed for Sobraj to be extradited to Thailand and tried for murders there. But on Thursday, Sampal told AFP he did not object to the release as he and the criminal he once pursued were now too old. I don't have any feelings toward him now that it's been so long, said Sampal, who is now 90. I think he has paid for his actions. Wow. 
Yeah, I think people would argue that he has aged out of crime at this point, but how can a serial killer age out of crime? That is just incredible that he is now free, um, if he is indeed guilty. But if you are curious about that case and you want to learn a little bit more about it, go check out that Netflix series called The Serpent. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, another big lawsuit that is out right now is studios can be sued over misleading movie trailers, judge rules, and the Ana de Armas fan suit. And Nick Romano wrote this article, but a lawsuit filed by a pair of disgruntled Ana de Armas fans over the 2019 rom-com yesterday could have far-reaching ramifications for movie studios. On Tuesday, a judge in California allowed parts of a lawsuit accusing Universal of false advertising to proceed ruling that a movie trailer constitutes commercial speech and is not entitled to broad protection under the First Amendment. The case began in January of this year when Paul Michael Rosa and Connor Wolf sued Universal claiming they rented yesterday with the expectation that Dayar Moss would be in it because she appeared in a trailer, leading to their dismay upon realizing she'd been cut from the film. Lawyers for Universal tried to get the case tossed, arguing that a trailer is an artistic, expressive work and therefore eligible for First Amendment protections. But according to a ruling from U.S. District Judge Stephen Wilson, obtained by Deadline Hollywood, Universal is correct that trailers involve some creativity and editorial discretion. But this creativity does not outweigh the commercial nature of a trailer. At its core, a trailer is an advertisement designed to sell a movie by providing consumers with a preview of the movie. Wilson did stipulate that the court's holding is limited to representations as to whether an actress or scene is in the movie and nothing else. The case now moves to discovery of potential class certification. EW has reached out to Universal Spokesman for comments on the ruling. And yesterday, directed by Danny Boyle and written by Richard Curtis, stars Himesh Patel as a struggling musician named Jack Malik, who wakes up one day after an accident in a world that has mysteriously never heard of the Beatles. He receives worldwide recognition after introducing the band's music and passing it off as his own. Lily James co-stars as Ellie, Jack's love interest, while Curtis described Armas's excised character as a compelling factor to the relationship in an interview with CinemaBlend. That was a very traumatic cut because she was brilliant in it. I mean, really radiant, Curtis told the outlet, and that turned out to be the problem. I think the audience likes the story about Ellie and Jack and goes with that, and it works out well. What we originally done was had, I don't want to describe too much, but had Anna de Armas as a complicating factor when he arrived in LA for the first time. And I think the audience did not like the fact that his eyes even strayed. Because then some people would go, oh, he really doesn't deserve her. He really doesn't deserve Lily. You know, it's one of those things where it's some of our favorite scenes for the film, but we had to cut them for the sake of the whole. Oh, well, keep you guys posted on that one as well. All in all, it's sort of false advertising when studios use those trailers and the trailers don't really match up to the movie or so the lawsuit is alleging. But we will keep you posted as that one goes through the court system as well. And then one final article for the year was the most shocking and grisly murders of 2022. This article sort of sums up all the worst of the murders in 2022. Rebecca Rosenberg wrote this article. A Texas anesthesiologist allegedly injected poison into IV bags, causing the death of a fellow physician and cardiac emergencies in 11 other patients at a Dallas facility in retaliation for a misconduct probe. 
Dr. Ronaldo Rivera Ortiz Jr., 59, was caught on surveillance footage tampering with saline pouches in a warming fridge outside an operating room. Federal prosecutors describe Ortiz as a medical terrorist who used heart-stopping drugs to turn IV bags into poison bombs that exploded on unsuspecting patients. He was arrested September 15th, one week after his medical license was yanked. Investigators said he was angry over a malpractice probe in May 2022 when one of his anesthesia patients stopped breathing during a routine procedure. Two days later, other doctors' patients began suffering unexplained heart anomalies during routine surgeries, according to the federal complaint. His attorney, John Nicholson, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Next one was Microsoft executive Jared Brigan, 33, was mysteriously shot dead February 16th in front of his two-year-old daughter in North Florida after dropping off his twins at the home of his ex-wife, Shana Gardner-Fernandez. The doting father had just taken the twins and his daughter Bexley, who he shares with his second wife, Kristen Bridgen, out for dinner. With Bexley strapped in her car seat, Brigham was driving home to St. Augustine from his ex's home in a Jacksonville suburb when he came upon a tire in the road and stopped, according to police. As he stepped out of his black Volkswagen Atlas, an unknown assailant mercilessly shot him in front of the terrified child and then fled. Bexley remained in the car for three full minutes near her father's lifeless body before a passerby stumbled on the disturbing scene. Kristen Brigham, 30, was home with a couple's seven-month-old daughter at London, waiting for his return. After the killing, details emerged of the slain father's acrimonious 2015 split with his ex-wife and near-constant custody litigation over their children. Gardner Fernandez, whose family founded successful paper craft company Stampin' Up!, and her new husband, Mario Fernandez, hired prominent criminal defense lawyer Henry Cox III shortly after the slaying. He did not return a request for comment. The shocking murder remains unsolved, and the Jacksonville Beach Police Department has not publicly named a suspect. The next one... Mother of two, Orsala Gall, 51, was stabbed more than 50 times in the basement of her $2 million New York City home April 16th, while her 13-year-old son slept upstairs. Her dismembered body was found stuffed in a bag and dumped in a nearby park with a trail of blood leading back to the crime scene. Her husband and older son were out of town touring colleges at the time. Five days after the grisly discovery, police arrested Gall's 44-year-old handyman lover, David Bonalla, who was in the country legally. Bonalla was captured on eerie surveillance footage, wheeling his lover's remains in the hockey bag that belonged to one of her sons before ditching the remains in a wooded area of the park. It soon emerged that the pair had been having an affair for about two years and they had gotten into an argument the morning of the killings because he believed she had given him HIV, according to what he told the police and the court records. Bonola pleaded guilty in November to first-degree manslaughter in exchange for 25 years in prison. Then we have the case of yoga teacher Caitlin Armstrong, and we did cover this case. This was the murder of Anna Mariah Wilson. Yoga teacher Caitlin Armstrong was charged with felony shooting her romantic rival and pro cyclist Anna Mariah Wilson, May 11th in Austin, Texas. Armstrong's then live-in boyfriend Colin Strickland, also a pro cyclist, had allegedly dated 25-year-old Wilson, who was in town for a competition. 
The afternoon before the murder, Wilson went swimming and dined at Pool Burger with Strickland. Moments after he dropped her off in an apartment where she was staying, an SUV matching Armstrong's was seen on surveillance outside the home, according to police. Cops questioned Armstrong on May 12th and then released her. She then took off to New York City and vanished. After leading authorities on a 43-day manhunt, Armstrong was finally captured in Costa Rica in July and extradited back to the U.S., where she is awaiting trial. Her defense lawyer, Rick Cover, did not immediately return a quest for comments. And we did cover off on that case June 12th in episode 179, if you want to hear more details about Mariah Wilson. And then we have the case of the University of Idaho students, Kaylee Gonclavis, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernoodle, and Ethan Chapin. They were all found fatally stabbed to death in the early morning hours of November 13th inside a rental home near campus. The victims were likely ambushed in their sleep and each was stabbed multiple times between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. on the second and third floors, according to police. Two female roommates on the first floor slept through the attack and authorities have described the slayings as a targeted attack. The Moscow Police Department, working with the Idaho State Police and the FBI, has not identified a suspect or recovered the large fixed blade knife they believe was used in the gruesome killings that have deeply shaken the small college town of 25,000. Police are searching for a 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai that was near the scene on the morning of the murders. And I do believe that there is a suspect in custody, according to the news this morning in that case. So these are some interesting cases that that should continue to unfold in the upcoming year. We really thank all of you for tuning in and listening and supporting this podcast throughout 2022. It has been a long journey for us, and we are hoping to have many, many good years. If you want to support the podcast further, please rate, review, and subscribe. Or you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram at the BFD Podcast. We do post pictures for the cases occasionally and lots of other interesting stuff on Instagram. We have some amazing new stuff planned for the coming year. We hope that you all will continue your support of this podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you who tunes in, who likes our pictures on Instagram, and who sends us emails asking questions or commenting on different things. We would ask you to continue to do that in the upcoming year as we continue to provide cases and weird and wacky and wild stuff. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about these crazy cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.